Hey, are you going to Gen Con? Well, guess what? So are Rudy Basso, Jeff Greiner, and I. And on Friday night at 8.30 p.m. of Gen Con, we will be at Tavern on South, and we want to meet with you. That's right. If you are going to Gen Con that Friday at 8.30, Tavern on South, it's a bar and restaurant, it's less than a block from the convention center, it's at 423 West South Street in Indianapolis. We will be there. We're going to be hanging out in the bar section. Come meet with us. Tell us what you think about the show. Maybe play a game with us. We don't know what we're going to be doing, but we want to meet fans of the Tome Show. Follow Jeff Greiner on Twitter at Squatch. That's at S-Q-U-A-C-H. He's the commander-in-chief of the Tome Show and the Tome Show Network, and a regular roundtable panelist. Rudy Basso of the D&D V&G podcast and regular panelist on the roundtable. You can follow him on Twitter at R-U-D-Y-B-A-S-S-O, and you can follow me on Twitter at J-A-M-E-S-I-N-T-R-O-C-A-S-O. Follow us there. We'll be sending you pictures of where we are at Gen Con and what we're doing. So even if you can't meet up with us on Friday night, you can meet up with us probably at another time. We have a lot of games scheduled, but we'd love to meet with you. So go follow us on Twitter. Follow The Tome Show on Facebook at facebook.com slash thetomeshow. So if you want to come check us out, like I said, 8.30, Friday night of Gen Con, Tavern on South. Follow us on Twitter to get other updates. All right, let's start the show. Hello, welcome to the D&D Roundtable presented by The Tome Show. I'm your host, James Intercasso. Please use the affiliate links on thetomeshow.com whenever you shop on Amazon or D&D Classics to help support the show. Just go to thetomeshow.com, click on the links in the show notes for this episode or any other, and then shop as you normally would. We'd also like to thank our sponsor for this podcast, noblenight.com, where out of print is available again. They have D&D and other tabletop RPGs. Any edition, any product. With Noble Knight, you can even sell them your old gaming products you aren't using anymore. Let's hear a quick word from them. Noble Knight is an online game store. D&D, they got that and more. And if you think out-of-print games are nice, shop Noble Knight, cause they've got the best price. And if you got gaming products to sell, then Noble Knight will buy them as well. So go to the place where gaming's the bomb and head over to noblenight.com. And don't forget to tell them the Tome Show sent you. Today's a bit of a special roundtable. I've got two interviews with people in the biz. We're talking with James Hake, the editor of N-World's Insider Magazine. A magazine put out by the website EN-World that puts out lots of content for 5th edition. Then, it's an interview with Susan Morris who has written another D&D for Kids adventure. She's also written a lot of books for Wizards of the Coast and has worked as an editor in their novels division. Anyway, let's hear from them. Hey, James, how's it going? Hey, James, I'm doing great. 
Excellent, excellent. Well, we got the same name going on here, but we have pretty distinct voices, so I think people will be able to tell us apart. James, let's talk about you and your experience with role-playing games. How long have you been playing RPGs? I started playing in my uh, sophomore year of high school, or just before it. So, wow, almost uh, almost six years now. You've been playing for a while. Are you? Uh, I guess that would put you right out of college, is that right? Yeah, pretty close to it. Nice, nice. So how did you get involved with uh, Insider Magazine? Russ Morrissey, uh, the webmaster of N-World and uh, the director of this magazine, he, he sent out a call on the N-World forums looking for people. I sent in a resume, a sample of my work, saying how much I'd love to, uh, love to be a part of this, how it seems like a great opportunity to break into the industry. And got an email back to next week saying, hey, you got the job. Oh, wow. No interview? No, just uh, you just look great and your samples were impressive, huh? <laughs> yeah, the, the, well, there was a, a bit of an interview, but over email, got in touch with the other people he was considering for the, the position, and the whole thing came together real quickly. Yeah, I remember him looking for it, and then it was like, hey, we're doing the magazine. Like, it was all uh -huh. of a sudden. Can you talk to me a little bit about what you studied in college and what sort of samples and everything you had to send to Russ? And talk to me then also about how your workflow works, because I know Russ, he's in the UK, right? Yeah, our entire correspondence there is uh, over email. We're sort of fighting time zones a little bit, but <laughs> it, it all works out pretty well. So in college, I... Uh, studied theater and creative writing. I ended up using uh, both skills there uh, in role-playing games. It's, I did theater since high school, so I always loved uh, improv, doing all of that. That helps so tremendously, oh, yes. both as a, a game master or a player, or whatever you're doing, even for non-D&D stuff like Fiasco, where everyone's a player. When it came to insider and freelance work i i was reading a blog by chris perkins of wizards of the coast who's talking about how he got started just by submitting uh relentlessly to uh dragon magazine back in the day mm -hmm. uh, when that was still up and running and it, uh, eventually he got he got published he, he lied about his age to get in there if i remember <laughs> right but you know he got he got published in dragon he got some adventures in dungeon and after a little while, he got on TSR, stayed with it when they went to Wizards, and you know now he's been there for upwards of two decades, and he's like he's one of the the head honchos over there. And I just thought I have so much respect for him after watching the the Acquisitions Incorporated games, all of his podcasts and stuff. Oh, that yes, I yes. that's the sort of person that I uh, aspire to be like. That's the sort of work I aspire to do. I mean, you're off to a great start. You mentioned actually Dungeon and Dragon magazine, which we don't really have. We have the Dragon Plus app that that Wizards just launched. That sort of gives you some of the content. But I think that Insider Magazine is sort of filling people's need for more crunch content, as well as you guys have a lot of really good flavor stuff and advice articles and that kind of thing. Why don't you tell people a little bit about what Insider is? Insider is, we use the word magazine for shorthand, but uh, it's, really, it's really something a little bit different than that. Um, it's not quite an e-zine. It's a weekly Patreon campaign that we have where... I uh, receive submissions from freelance writers and 
uh, we work with it and we create RPG content. Uh, sometimes it's crunch, new classes, mm -hmm. races, monsters, spells, magic items, that sort of thing. Sometimes it's advice articles, like we just published um, a bit by uh, Kale Chenier that is all advice on how to run a good dungeon crawl. Um, we published something by you the other week about new <laughs> diseases, uh, and I I think that's an incredible article. It's, uh, it, it shores up places where uh, you know the world's most famous RPG is a little weak, mm -hmm. uh, or weak in content at least, not quite as much there to work with. Sure. So it's it's a great way in the absence of art of actual print or e-zines like Dungeon or Dragon Magazine to it, it fills a gap that uh, I think a lot of people would say that Dragon Plus hasn't been able to fill yet. It fills two gaps. So it fills that need for content that I think a lot of RPG players are feeling out there right now. But I think it also then fills the gap for people who are freelance writers or who want to uh, want to write an article or an adventure or something like that. Uh, they now have a place where they can submit and do that. Like you mentioned about Chris Perkins, he submitted relentlessly to magazines, um, you know, and, and now there is a place to do that again with Insider, which I think uh, is really great. Yeah, I agree completely. It's probably the best and most uh, available way to get into the industry right now. There are Kickstarters all over the place, true. But if you're just a, a freelance writer looking to get his first, his or her first couple of credits there, this is a perfect place. It's it's square one and square five and square ten, depending <laughs> on how, how far you want to go with it. And you have some great articles. There are some really great adventures in here. I don't think I've been disappointed yet. With, uh, with an article that's come out of there. Um, why don't you talk to me a little bit about uh, some of your, your favorite articles on there that you would like people to check out. And, you know, we can, we can talk about the, uh, the new diseases and, uh, and the <laughs> Chase article as well that, that I wrote. I'm sure they're in your favorites, but uh, what else is there? Back uh, when we were first starting this, we had a period where we just accepted a ton of stuff to have a, to have a backlog. Mm -hmm. And that, that's always stuff that pops up first in my mind when I think of when I go thinking back. And I think out of that swath, one of my favorite pieces was um, something by Jensen Topazer, uh, that was new pets for players. Oh yes. And it was always it was uh, when I first looked at the fifth edition game, I was uh, a bit dis disappointed uh, with the options for uh, their player characters having uh, companions, animal companions, uh, rangers. You know, there was there's a whole controversy about how how worthwhile it is to take that subclass if you just want a pet to follow you around. When I when I play, especially with uh, small children. One of the first things they always seem to want is, "Can I have a pet?" <laughs> maybe trying to trying to fill a hole they don't have in their household life or something. Maybe, <laughs> but people people love having companions, whether uh, whether they're animals or whether they're they're people who are you know there to do their bidding, hirelings. That one that one was one of my favorites. It filled that gap wonderfully. Mark Hart created uh, a two part article actually called King and Country, mm. which allows you to use the new background feature that was uh, created in this edition of the game to, instead of having it represent an, uh, or a profession or something like that, that before your character went and started adventuring, it allows you to bring in where you're from, how your, how your home country uh, influenced who you are today. 
And yeah, so that's that's King and Country one and two, which we we published not too long ago. Great. Uh, you know what? Talk to me a little bit, James, about the art. The art for Insider, I think, is very distinct. It's really fun. It's really great. And again, it's a place where uh, you guys are hiring freelance artists, and it's a it's a great way for people who want to submit their art kind of to to break in as well. Uh, talk to me about how you get submissions for those and what the art style of Insider is like. Definitely, the the art is. I'll talk to you about it as much as I can. Uh, <laughs> our art director is is really really the guy uh, who deals with all of the freelancers on that end. Sure. Um, but sure. but my part of that is when I when I get a new article, I go over it real quick. Um, I get a I get a strong impression of it. If it's an adventure, I, I look for notable NPCs or uh, particularly uh, cinematic locations, something that would translate really well to a visual medium. Um, and Obviously, stuff that's important to the article too. For the first King and Country, there were two backgrounds that were samples in there, and I, I looked at them and I thought, okay, what would be the best for the Arcane Dominion, and what would be the best for the Crusader Nation? Uh, I have a big folder of uh, fantasy art that I've scoured from the internet, and I look through it and I and I try and get inspiration, and I eventually uh, draft up an art request for a director saying, I need a quarter page of this uh, blue-scaled dragon man who has uh, a whole bunch of arcane-looking jewelry draped all over him like he's uh, casting some sort of ritual. Something that's evocative and uh, memorable. Something that sticks with the reader and brightens up the page. Uh, helps him not get lost in the text. And uh, I try to keep the art requests as simple as possible so that uh, the freelancers that we hire for that uh, have their full creative capacity to make something that even I wouldn't expect. I think that's uh, the best part of working with a team of creatives is that everything is at least a little bit of a surprise when you get right down to it. Um, a little bit of uh, structure is nice. You don't want to be surprised too much. You want to keep <laughs> everything a bit organized. but. If you give if you give artists, whether they're writers or visual artists or you know musicians or actors or whatever, if you give them that creative freedom with a few boundaries, incredible things start happening. Yeah, I I have found that as well. Um, you know, my day job is I'm a writer producer. I make television commercials, and uh, I just love when you you know you sort of have this. Per, these parameters to play with and I feel like that really helps you be creative because then you have challenges and obstacles and a goal to reach as opposed to just sort of free-forming it you know um, definitely and and that's really where creativity comes in especially when you're being collaborative as part of a team the people you're working with help create those parameters and it's really something else it's it's probably a reason that you know um, guys like you and I like to do things like improv and play tabletop role-playing games because that's collaborative storytelling and creation. And with a little bit of structure, too. Mm -hmm. uh, one of my uh, most interesting D&D uh, &D games was I, was I was playing with a new DM at the time, and uh, he was really big into sandbox worlds. He was really into go-anywhere-do-anything stuff, and I love that. My current campaign with uh, Princes of the Apocalypse is very sandboxy. But... Uh, <laughs> We didn't really receive any structure for that campaign. It was, you are in here and go. <laughs> it's like, oh boy. Well, that, that structure is something you need to latch on to. 
Um, and that definitely applies, you know, both to Insider and also to GMs who are running their own game. Is that uh, as much as you want to not railroad players, you gotta you gotta have a, at least a, a semblance of a track that they can latch onto and they can start puzzling out uh, solutions to. Yeah, yeah, you have to have hooks and you have to know kind of what's going on in the world at the very least for them Definitely. to be able to, to do something. Otherwise, they're just, you know, wandering around in a weird toy box, I guess. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so on the note of Insider, how does your pricing model work? For people who aren't familiar with, with Patreon, how do they get involved? What will it cost them to check out Insider? Uh, Patreon is a wonderful model. Um, I, I think this is what will save the, uh, the e-zine, uh, <laughs> thing because people, people, there, there's something about paying for an issue of a magazine that, you know, you pay 15 bucks, say mm -hmm. for an issue of a magazine and you're going to, and even if it's like a, a hundred page thick thing, you end up using maybe only 10% of the content in it. There's, there's a huge gamble of what you're actually going to get for your dollar. Um, with Patreon, uh, it's all it's all pay what you will. Um, the default option for Insider is give $1 per article. So if, if we publish uh, four articles a month, that's, you know, one a week, mm -hmm. then you'll end up paying $1 for each of those articles. And by the end of the month, you'll have three new crunch articles and an adventure for all of $4, which is a it's an incredible deal it, it baffles <laughs> me that we're able to do this but it's it, with the nearly 700 people who we've got uh, as our patrons right now uh pledging a total of nearly uh of actually over now now that i look at it 1800 dollars for every article we produce if since we have that uh support uh there we're uh, we're able to this is really the mission of insider Right. is to uh, pay all of our freelancers, whether they're writers or artists or the core creative team, a, a fair wage. And that, that dedication towards, you know, fair, fair money for good content uh, extends to uh, our patrons as well. We have um, a, a monthly cap that we uh, allow. If you, if you really want to pay a dollar, you know, if you want to pay three or ten dollars for every article but you're worried that suddenly in the month of august or something uh we'll publish this flurry of content suddenly for for some reason we'll send out you know 10 articles which and that would be a good month let me tell you um <laughs> <laughs> but if if suddenly we do something like that uh, someone who's paying five bucks an article suddenly they're down fifty dollars that's a new core rule book um they're like that's that's not really what i was looking for they can set a cap on how much they pay each month. We we publish four articles a month usually. So if you pay three bucks an article, which is what our average uh, patron contributes, you set a cap at twelve dollars a month. That means that you're you're giving us this donation really to help us keep producing content. And then everything that comes after that, once you've hit that maximum of twelve dollars a month, you get it for free. It's 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 a sort of a good faith deal that we have with each other. These people who are subscribing to us aren't our customers. They're our patrons. They're, they're helping us to create good RPG content, and we're thanking them by uh, making it available. 
And it really is some great content out there. And I'm not just saying that as a guy who has written for the <laughs> publication. Uh, all of the articles that I have had zero to do with are some of my favorite things out there for fifth edition. Um, you know, and, and there's great things, you know, new druid builds. There's there's all kind of adventures. I mean, that's that's the real thing is you can get a whole bunch of new adventures, which is really great. How do I get back issue content, if you will? Mm. Um, back issue content is super easy to get. Uh, as soon as uh, Patreon has uh, billed your card or your PayPal or whatever the myriad ways to subscribe to Patreon there are, once they've billed you for your first uh, article, and that usually happens every week, you have access to everything we've ever produced. Um, there's a there's a page on the Patreon uh, feed that says all posts or, or that says creator posts, and you can just go through there. But, uh, you know, eventually, after a while, uh, that's a lot of stuff. That's a long list of scrolling. Um, we have on the NWorld forums a, a thread that lists every single article we've ever produced. And uh, you just go through there. Once you've paid anything at all, you have access to our, our total back catalog. Um, and you can just go through there and download them all as PDFs. And what if I'm a little skeptical? What if I'm listening to this and I think, ah, you know, this might be good, but how do I know the content is actually great? There are actually some free offerings people can check out. Uh-huh, absolutely. Um, our, our first uh, articles that we, that we commissioned were um, uh, especially designed to be released to the public, uh, absolutely free. I think there, there's two rules content crunch articles. Mm -hmm. There's one sort of system neutral thing you can use for 5th edition or Pathfinder, or it's really just good advice for whatever kind of game you run. There's one adventure. Um, by Paul Oaklesh called The Business of Emotion, which um, I, I just laughed out loud when I first saw that uh, <laughs> that uh, thing because it's like nothing I, I'd ever really seen before in an RPG. It's It's got such an air of uh, whimsy to it that I, I, I saw it and I instantly thought, well, no other player has ever seen a published adventure like this one with all it's dealing with a, a village that has suddenly become sort of punch drunk on love. <laughs> and like that's I'm, even our, even adventures that I've created whole cloth for my group. I've never seen anything like that. Um, <laughs> if you're, if you're looking for content that will one, knock your socks off and uh, <laughs> two, be something totally unique, something that uh, uh, in, in addition to fitting your style as a GM uh, and being easy to run is also something that you might not have thought of on your own. This is where you'll find it. Uh, if I'm looking to submit crunch, if I'm looking to submit advice, if I'm looking to submit an adventure, what are the things that you as the editor, because you're the one who's going through a lot of these submissions, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, all of them, right? You go through everything. Every single one of them. We've got a we've got a sister magazine called Trail Seeker that deals with Pathfinder things, um, and we have another article, uh, another editor for for that team. It's a different it's a different team, but yeah, everything for fifth edition stuff on Insider that goes right through me. Nice. So, what is it that you look for when you are uh, you know going through all of these submissions and emails? What catches your eye? I look for one first and foremost good writing, mm -hmm. um, and no matter how good an idea is, if if uh, it's not if it's not really solid writing, there's there's not too much I can do with it. That's you know that's space number one. But beyond that, 
Um, and so often, if it's really good in some of these categories, you can make up for it. I'm willing to put in the the extra time to go back and forth with uh, with a with an edit with a freelancer, make sure it all uh, reads smoothly. But the best thing to have in an article is creativity. Um, if it's something that I uh, have never seen before, it's automatically a step above uh, something that I've seen before, but is done really well. Because if, if you're gonna if you're gonna make an article about I don't know I haven't I haven't received a submission like this but if you're gonna make an article about uh, a kind of a new kind of dwarf mm-hmm. let's say um, the the dwarf that is um, you know living on the surface the surface dwarf something that I could see in Dragon Age or something like that sure. uh, no matter how well you write it or what sort of ideas you put into it it's not going to catch my eye quite as well as the kind of dwarf that you know lives in Atlantis that built the undersea okay. civilization instead of the underground one um, that that is uh, that's gold for me that's something that will if I put that in one of my campaigns uh, that would be something that, that, that wows players it's something that is an instant hook um, and it's those instant hooks that I look for, both in uh, crunch submissions, something that a player will really want to do, uh, and e- almost even more so in adventures. Right, yeah, I have to say the adventures are really one of the best pieces of this. I, I love the creative content, um, you know, the business of emotion, like you said, it's it's like nothing that's ever happened at my table, uh, mm-hmm. but I want it to happen. When I was reading it, I was like, "Oh, this is great!" Um, yeah, you know. And I've seen I've seen DMs out there on Twitter and social media asking, you know, where are more adventures? Where can I find adventures? This is the place where you can you can find one for free right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, so that's great. And I know that when I uh, was, you know, when I sent submissions to you, what I was trying to look for was, where are there, you know, like you had said earlier, where are there gaps as well? Yes. You know, where where do we only have a few items that could use some expansion or, or we could get more creative with the, the general idea that's been presented or uh, you know, oh, they're, they're, they talk about this a little bit, but there isn't a lot of advice on how to create this specific thing within the core rule books. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, which is how, how we came up with, uh, the chase sequence article about how to run a good chase sequence with more mm-hmm. chase complication tables, which I have to say, uh, you know, I turned into you and turned into something way better than, uh, <laughs> than I had ever planned on. Uh, you know, the art, uh, you guys added an extra table in there. Uh, just I amazing. love, yeah, I love the art for that one. Um, and I, I, my job as an editor, more than anything else, is not to is not to remove content that's been put in uh, so much as it is to by uh, careful additions, careful rewordings, is to bring out the author's voice. It's to make the author sound more like themselves than they could on their own. Yeah, that's something that I I learned from uh, Paizo's editor uh, Jessica Price. She talked about that on a blog post once, and I think that's a perfect summation of what I do here. Well, you are, I have to say, you are excellent at it. Uh, uh, you know, and it's it's amazing. I can't imagine the amount of work that you and the rest of the team are are really putting into this. Um, what what are your hours like on this? <laughs> Um, it, it really comes down to about a, about the hours of a part-time job. Mm-hmm. If we're producing one article a week, um, I tend to 
send one, maybe two drafts for revision back to an uh, back to a freelancer. So I'll usually I'll usually spend it in hour blocks. I'll look at one article for an hour, make sure it's all all smooth, all finished up. I'll send it back, um, and I I guess I I average somewhere between fifteen and twenty hours a week putting all this together. Sure, sure. And you, uh, what would you say as far as submissions goes? Do, do you get a ton of those? Uh, I would imagine you get lots and lots of submissions. <laughs> yeah, it um, it varies, but there are times when I'm just absolutely flooded by it. Um, <laughs> it's it's um, I try to deal with submissions as fast as I can. Um, sometimes, sometimes, you know, we've already commissioned everything for the next month. And so I have to say, well, I'll get back to you as soon as I can. But when the, the volume of submissions really goes up, suddenly the stuff that I've set aside, saved for next month, it's instantly buried underneath (laughs) a a new set of submissions. I always feel bad when I, uh, don't or can't get back to someone I've, I've said, I'll get back to you about about an article because oftentimes they're they're really good good stuff. Um, but <laughs> there's one piece of advice I can say for people uh, who've submitted in the past and just haven't received a response from me: it's resubmit. Uh, <laughs> honestly, if 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 I reject an article, if I say we can't use it, I'll tell you. Um, if I say nothing, then uh, it's probably gotten buried in the slush bin. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I mean, you are only one person. Uh, yep. And you have all of the editing of this magazine to do on top of going through the submission pile. So, um, you know, your your work is just invaluable. Thank you so much for being part of the team, because I know it's also a, a big passion project for you and for Definitely. us. And it's it's amazing. It's great. We, yeah, we love what we do. This is the best job I've ever had, really. Um, uh, one thing, uh, going back to when we were talking about adventures, um, I'd like to tease a little bit is, um, it's nothing too specific. I'm not sure how much I'm really allowed to say, but uh, a couple days ago on the N world forums, Russ, um, uh, kind of teased this himself. Uh, we're planning, um, if you're missing those, those classic first edition modules, those, you know, sort of 32 page, um, full-length pieces. Uh, if you, if the stuff on Insider has been a little bit, a little bit sparse, it's about ten pages. And if if your choice is either ten pages or the two hundred fifty-six page adventure path that uh, Wizards puts out, um, we're planning on uh, making a double-length adventure sometime in the nearish future. Um, so I can't say too much about what it is yet. It's a little <laughs> far off, but. Um, People who are fans of classic adventures, I think they'll they'll like what's going to come out on Insider pretty soon. Excellent, that's that's awesome. So if people uh, are enticed by that or enticed by the rest of our conversation, where should they go to check out Insider? If you're going to check out Insider, there's always a link on the N World forums. Um, but also, if you just Google search Patreon Insider, there's a five instead of an S. Uh, then you'll find it. It'll come up real soon. Even EN World Patreon will find you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, you can also go over to thetomeshow.com where in the show notes for this episode, you will be able to check out the, uh, the, the link for this. And if people want to submit articles to you, James, where should they go? 
Um, you can. We've got a submissions page you can go to. I'm sure uh, Tome Show will be able to link that in the description. Of course, of course. Um, or if you just want to uh, send it straight to me, uh, my email address is j-o-e-y-h-a-e-c-k at gmail.com. Excellent, excellent. And is there anywhere else you can be found online if people want to tweet at you or, or anything like that? Um, no, I actually don't have a Twitter right now. Um, I probably should get on that, move into the, you know, the 21st century. Um, if you want to find me, um, I'm always lurking around the N-World forums. You'll, you can send me a question there. Excellent, excellent. And he just gave out his email, people, so you can also find him that way. Uh, and if you guys want to find us, you know we're over at thetomeshow.com and facebook.com slash thetomeshow. James, thank you very much for coming on today. Great being on the show. Thank you, James. Excellent. All right, everybody. I am now with Susan J. Morris, who is an author. She's an editor for Wizards of the Coast, and she, of course, wrote and designed the Heroes of Hyzod. And the last time she was on the Tome Show, we talked about her career and everything, and we talked a lot about the Heroes of Hyzod. And now she has an announcement about another free chapter, I would say, in this D&D for Kids series. Uh, Susan, why don't you tell us a little bit about Monster Slayers, the Champions of the Elements? So Monster Slayers, Champions of the Elements is uh, essentially a new adventure in the exact same form as the Heroes of Hesiod. So if your kids enjoyed the first one, this would give them new monsters and a new story and adventure to go along with it. Um, and so the idea is that there's this strange castle carved into the base of nearby mountains that everyone thinks is haunted. Um, there are sometimes like strange lights at night, sometimes smoke, sometimes like you can hear the sound of wind, and sometimes the ground shakes. And you and your friends have been dared to spend one full night in there. So you make your way in, and you find that the castle was basically expecting you. There are weapons on the table with your names on them, and a Ganassi appears and challenges you to the Battle of the Elements. Uh, which means you have to defeat the champions of water, fire, air, and earth in order to prove your uh, bravery and cleverness. <laughs> and at the end, you get a badge that declares you a hero of the elements. And of course, this all ties in uh, with the elemental evil stuff that D&D's been doing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's very thematic, which I think is cool that it, you know, much like all of the video games and the Neverwinter MMO and everything, it ties into uh, the overarching story. Um, and it is a super fun adventure. There's a lot of really great uh, villains that you have Thanks. going on here. You know, uh, the, the champion of Earth is an enormous mushroom uh, who is extremely difficult to beat. Um, and uh, so, so let's talk a little bit about sort of the, the mechanics within the adventure. Uh, how is it perfect for kids? So a couple things I think help make it um, kids suitable. One of which is that it's it's fairly simple. It's turn based, and um, you only do one. You do one point of damage unless you are the rogue who has a chance to do two if they get sneak attack. Uh, and so every turn, you basically you move, you take your action, and you take your special action if you can, your special ability. Uh, and the monsters are the exact same way. And there's a set order or initiative. Um, and so it's it's almost like it's kind of trying to bridge the board games that these kids have probably been playing um, with D and D. Mm -hmm. um, and so the monsters, the things that, that so it is simple enough, but I think, um, and, and complex enough so they don't feel like they're being babied. I think it's really important that you not feel like you're playing a baby game. Totally. Um, cause the cool thing about D and D is that it's cool and totally adult. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, 
<laughs> so the, the other thing that I try and do uh, is that I try and make sure that it has uh, a variety in terms of like fighting styles and everything. So I think there are a couple things that make uh, monster battles interesting for kids. Uh, one is what they do. Like if they all attack the same way, it's really not interesting. So you want, you know, some that are cool when you hit them, others to do cool things when they hit you, some to be like movement oriented. For some reason, um, the kids I've play tested with have really enjoyed being moved around the board and also moving other things around the board. Um, and then also some that affect uh, the way in which your character acts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing I think is important is to give them, make sure that every hero has a type of monster, uh, has a chance to shine. So you have to build it so that like, that's why I still have bloodied, even though that's, um, very fourth edition. It's not, it's not even called bloodied, but the idea is that like, if there aren't two monsters out at the same time, the wizard never gets a chance to use their ability. They basically does splash damage. So they can affect two monsters at the same time. Uh, and uh, it's the same reason that I have some with like a high AC but low hit points and others with a uh, low AC but high hit points is you want to make sure that you get um, a monster that every single character type is well disposed towards defeating. For instance, um, with my Thunder Toad, which can hop and <laughs> knock things over <laughs> and also can tie things up with its tongue, um, it can't use its special ability if it hops and successfully knocks over the dwarf. So basically... Uh, if the if the Thunder Toad lands next to her and knocks her over, then she her special ability triggers and um, and she actually can push Thunder Toad back two squares, and then the Thunder Toad can't wrap anyone up in its tongue unless that happens to push it next to another character, which you know they don't have to do because they get to choose which direction it gets pushed back. Nice, nice. That's really cool, and I think that's great for kids. Again, uh, you know, it certainly doesn't feel like a baby game uh, when you have that level of complexity in it. Well, right. And the idea is that uh, when I actually the f- was playtesting this um, at Gen Con, one of the things I found was that I ended up playing with kids who were actually like 14 years old and kids who are four years old um, at the same table often. And they get something different out of it. I wanted a game where you felt like there were two things. One, that you could feel like you could learn to get better at it. Like you could learn. Like So I think that I tried to build in a fair amount of tactics possible. Like if you had a group that really knows tactics, you could actually do something pretty clever. Um, to defeat these monsters with your abilities mm-hmm. by working together. But on the other hand, if you don't do any of that and you just hit things, it should still be an entertaining time uh, based <laughs> on the idea that things should be um, reacting in interesting ways. And the whole theory is that to make this a very reactive world, because I think that that's one of the main things that drives engagement. And it's a th- something that drives a lot of people to D&D. It's one of the few games where your actions like have a huge impact on the world. And so basically I want it so that every action you take has some kind of huge reaction. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that is a very D&D concept, right? That the guy who just wants to swing a sword at stuff has just as good a time as the person who wants to be, uh, you know, getting in there and, and breaking the rule set and, and trying right. things that aren't in the rules, right? It's, it's right. the same idea. It's awesome. And so that's actually one of the things I found that really worked with the four-year-olds and 14-year-olds. And I mean, also, fortunately, like the 14-year-olds and four-year-olds were all just amazing, excitable excited people and everything so it was um they all worked really well together but none of them were bored nice nice. which was really exciting that's awesome so let's talk a little bit about how the champions of the elements came to be because the last time you were on this podcast which was not very long ago uh (laughs) we were we were talking about this and it was like they'll never do it again the the dream is over it had been several years and then out of the blue 
uh, it seemed that Wizards wanted to get back on board, which I think we're all, you know, uh, cheering about. I saw a lot of love for this online and on social media. I think people want to have an option for younger kids to be able to play D&D. Um, so do you have any idea how this came about? No, actually, it was really funny, though, because I swear I had just given that interview when it, like they called and I was like, wow, I mean, it's the first interview in five years I've given where I've said that it's never happening. <laughs> and then, like, it, I mean, I, that's that's uh, that's fate for you or karma, right? Like you couldn't have written that better in a book. Absolutely. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe maybe it was just speaking it aloud is what made it happen. You yes. Know? Who knows? Because <laughs> I've always just said like, oh, you know, they're focusing on core, but you never know. Just talk to them. Um, and so, yeah, I, I don't actually know what brought about the change other than I know that they were restarting um, Dragon and it could be that they wanted more material for that. Mm -hmm. um, that's different from what they have in the Tumblr and everything. Right. Uh, and I know, like, the last one got an incredibly good response. Like, it was very popular. So, and I know it was popular with the people internally. It's just that they didn't have resources to focus on it right. Um, right. for a really long time. And so, in this case, I was incredibly grateful that I'd actually... Um, so the first adventure was published five years ago, but in between, I've been running, um, making new modules and running them for kids at Gen Con, uh, primarily the Girl Scouts. Uh, and doing that, I was able to test a large number of different monster mechanics and everything. And I am so grateful for that because <laughs> otherwise, like having a tight deadline, I wouldn't have necessarily had like the time to do what I hope is a good, you know, good play-tested solid monsters. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because it seems like uh, the time between you, us having that interview and then this coming out was a very short time. So you actually already had some things in your back pocket. You weren't really going right from scratch for this. Yeah, I'd written four additional uh, adventures. So uh, basically the Thunder Toad is like straight out taken from one of them. <laughs> um, and it was very successful. It was, that was basically done because the Boulette was probably the most popular monster in Heroes of Asayad. And it's because, uh, and this is where it gets down to another thing that I think kids will like better about this one than the previous one is that I put a lot more description in and I usually just, you count on the DM to kind of like give the description, but especially if it's a kid running for a kid, I think the description can be really important for the kids' enjoyment. Like, they really loved the fact that the boulette, when they got swallowed by it, it was all slimy and gross. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, their sword was dripping when they got out. Like, you know, they just really loved that. And they loved getting swallowed because it was something they'd never thought of happening in a game. Um, and so uh, the tongue tie is trying to, like, capitalize on their that enjoyment of the gross slash coolness of being... Um, like having something weird like that happen. I think it's not as cool as swallowing, but I do think it's important to vary it. You know, I, again, I think that's very D&D. &D. You see a lot of monsters with similar or the same abilities, but then they have other things about them that are different. Um, and the Thunder Toad, I mean, that's just fun, right? Like, that's, <laughs> that's an, I want to work a Thunder Toad into my 5e game. Uh, so, um, and you do, you have some sort of classic D&D monsters in here, uh, which is also really cool. You know, your, your champion of air is a, uh, Wyvern, you have a uh, um, Myconoid, yeah, yep. right? Um, oh, I love, you can ask my gaming group, I love the mushrooms, I love the Myconoids. Uh, <laughs> they always know they're in trouble when they see me with my mushroom minis, I've got too many of them too. Oh, nice, <laughs> nice, that's, I. you know, I have yet to play in a game where uh, where they make an appearance in, in 20 years of playing D&D. &D. Oh, they um, are so fun. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, well, I'm going to work them into the game that I DM now. Now that I know you're a big fan, I need to make sure that I'm using <laughs> Well, them. and like I do like homebrew effects and everything too because like I've been playing with them. Ever since I was a kid, I've loved the idea. I've loved mushrooms. I think they're fun and cool and thematic. Um, but also uh, I love the idea of mind affecting uh, effects. Like when I was a kid, I was doing the Forgotten Realms Unlimited Adventures in order to like make dungeons for my friends and stuff. Um, and one of the things you can do is you can make your own monsters. And I thought it was really interesting that so many monsters were all based on, uh, the idea of hit points and armor class, but what if something was super easy to defeat, but was really good at convincing you, you didn't want to. Right. Right. Um, <laughs> and like really good. And so like, I love anything that kind of affects the way player, and you have to have a group that's willing to go with that. Right. Mm-hmm. But anything that kind of affects the way players interact, I think is really fun. And the kids really loved it. The, um, so the Myconoid, uh, the mechanics were actually from a zombie that threw its brains at people. Um, from <laughs> a haunted sleepover that I actually designed with Tracy Hurley uh, oh, from nice. the home show. Yeah, yes, we ran that yeah. for the Girl Scout. Oh, that's awesome. So how often are you guys running? I know you said you sort of, uh, one of the places you got your start was running games for your Girl Scout troop uh, when you were still in a Girl Scout troop. But now it sounds like you continue to run games for Girl Scouts, which is awesome because obviously it's great for kids to get in on this, but it's also great for girls specifically to be mm. in on this as you know, the gamer community tries to grow their their female contention and everything. So because yeah. I, I had read somewhere recently that, you know, the the number of women playing D D is growing, but it is still far smaller than the number of men who play. And I'd love to see that brought up, you know, fifty fifty. It would be great. Yeah, I think that'd be amazing. It's funny because a lot of my gaming historically has been so female dominated. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. um, I mean, there have been so many, like, so many women in my gaming experience. My first game was um, majority women. Uh, my second game, and, and that's the one that I was playing in, and, you know, with the, the pastry chef and everything. Right, uh, right. Which was yeah. amazing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but they specifically went out for a group that was 50% or more um, ladies. And then the, uh, the first, obviously, I ran a group for Girl Scouts, but, like, every single experience I've had is actually... Uh, then until I moved out here uh, to Seattle and ended up gaming at Wizards, actually, <laughs> all of my games had a lot of women in them. And I think that part of it is just, um, I guess, in you know, getting into the community, like getting that in can be kind of difficult if you don't look the part, mm-hmm. if people mm-hmm. don't assume uh, that you're part of that. Like I remember in high school, like you used to like, you know, have the books with you and just kind of show them around like you know with your bio textbook uh so that people would identify you because otherwise you couldn't necessarily find each other right um and i think as a sometimes as a woman you're not necessarily identified as uh i mean i guess that's that's probably getting better now but when i was a kid that was definitely my issue Mm -hmm. um and then sometimes people just aren't asked and they'd really enjoy it like um one of the new players in my game um is a woman and she's um She's fantastic. I'm, I'm gonna. She's an amazing role player and everything. And I never, like, I she just never been asked. She loves fantasy and everything. So, yeah, I mean, that's and I think that's a big part of it is that a lot of people are never asked because it's never assumed. Uh, like, oh, this person might like this or or that kind of thing. Um, and it is great to see. I think you sort of lose those inhibitions and sort of the social constructs and uh, of you know, geekdom, uh, you, you don't care as much when you're an adult. And it's nice to see now uh, other adults getting people into the game who are, you know, 
up in their 20s or 30s or 40s or whatever, and they're having a great time, and it's the first time they're playing. Yeah, I think that uh, new players really bring the sense of wonder to games. And like I've had, it's my, I really always want at least one new player, if not more, in every game I run. And uh, because because of that, and that's one of the reasons I homebrew too. It's I'm I'm a very explorer type in my game style, in that I really enjoy having people constantly kind of surprised or amazed or happy or experiencing this wonder about the game. Um, and I think that uh, even jaded players get that a little bit more when there's a new player because they can see it through their eyes, the same way that parents suddenly re-experience the joy of the holidays uh, when they have kids they get to show them to. Like all of a sudden they're in pumpkin patches where they probably didn't do that like a couple years before they had kids. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's absolutely true. You know, uh, now that I have nieces and nephews who are very young, it's great to be able to roll around on the floor and, and play with toys again and, and that kind of thing. Uh, and I am just waiting for them to be old enough to sit still at a table so that I can play yes. these games with them, you know? <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting. I do think, like, back to the point I was making about the um, about not being asked, I do know that there are a number of people who got themselves into who found the books and then sought out people. I was one of those people who got myself into it. But mm -hmm. uh, there's so many people who are kind of press-gamed by their friends into it, too. And I think that's what doesn't happen as often uh, with women. Yes. Yeah, um, I think you're absolutely right. So we need to peer pressure more <laughs> women into playing D&D. Is that what I'm hearing you say? <laughs> in, in a non-creepy, entirely non-creepy <laughs> way. You're invited to role-play with someone's Sometimes you can get the wrong impression. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Well, and it's funny. I think um, it was Tracy Hurley who had a very good point, which is, uh, you know, women might feel intimidated or uh, feel, you know, strange if it's a group of all men and there's only one woman playing. And if they're the new player, you know, that's that's sort of out of a lot of people's comfort zone. Right. Um, and so if you can do your best to uh, get a very diverse group of people, um, you know, uh, that that makes everybody more comfortable, new and old players alike. I agree. I think that uh, that de that definitely makes it more comfortable, especially when you're being invited in to a group. Um, and it's it's hard because I feel like there's a certain amount of um, patronizing that happens to any new player, but it can be a little bit worse, even if you're not a new player, uh, if you're a woman. Um, and I think that's just the urge to be helpful to someone that you find attractive. But um, it can I think it can put people off. I think that Champions of the Elements is great. I do not even know if you know the answer to this question, so I will just say that I would like to see more of these. Uh, if they are releasing them uh, as parts of the storylines, it'd be great to see a, a Rage of Demons uh, monster slayers. <laughs> for kids. Demons right. for kids. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe there's a, maybe there's a, a, a demon that's kid-friendly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm sure parents will love the idea of demons who um, are friendly with kids. Right. Right, right. Well, maybe we'll maybe we'll just see another adventure around the time of Rage of Demons that doesn't tie in. Who knows? Um, but I am really glad that uh, that they called you up for this one again. Um, so because uh, this is great, it's available for free on the Wizards website. We will link it definitely over at thetomeshow.com. Um, do you have? If you get to do this again, is there anything special that you would like to do or, or bring out for it? Uh, well, the one thing I want to do is I want to explore kind of other systems because this is the combat system. Um, I'd really love to kind of explore. I mean, if you look at my games, combat's kind of like 
usually not the area that has the most attention paid to it. I really like um, mysteries. I like social games. I would love to do something that kind of gets you involved in the skill sets. So another one that gets you involved in like interaction. Um, my theory when you have new players in general is to kind of bring them in at the most structured point because that's what they're most comfortable with. And so usually combat. But then you want to start getting into skills, which are semi-structured. Right, um, right. And then you want to start getting into social stuff, which is the least structured and the most intimidating. But by the time they've done the other two, um, they're probably ready for it. So I'd love to do stuff like that. I think it would be really fun. And I think that it would kind of um, broaden the concept of D&D through these uh, beginning games. I mean, my whole theory was that you use these games to kind of learn all the systems of D&D and then you can put them together to have a whole system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that would be incredible. I would love to see social interaction and skills and then you get to put everything together. And then, uh, you know, it becomes easy for people within this framework to start making their own adventures, right? Yeah, exactly. And the, the other idea is that, like, no one wants to read rules. And this way, like, it's a page of rules per system, essentially. Mm -hmm. And then you learn by doing. Yeah. And oh. if all your group wants to do is get together and, and hack apart some monsters, uh, you can do that. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is, like I said, this is really great. I would definitely love to see more Wizards of the Coast, if you're listening. Uh, <laughs> uh, we, we would love to see more and I know I'm not the only one. Uh, can you talk to me just a little bit about, uh, the dice? Um, you know, it's, it's a D20 and a few D6s. Uh, how did you come up with a system like that? Uh, it seems like a great idea because you teach people how to substitute for a D20. So if they're a household that kind of has never played D&D &D before, they can probably pull some six-sided die from some other board games. Was that your idea behind this? Yes. I mean, it's mainly that, like, when I remember when I was a kid, I didn't have any dice until I finally got into my first game. And I really wanted to play at home with my sister <laughs> during summer vacation. Um, so, yeah, I wanted it to be something that even kids could just, like, pull apart another game. I think the D20s are emblematic of D&D, &D, so I wanted to make sure I included that. And I think it's fun. They have a really nice belt curve um yeah it's interesting for the 3d6 what i ended up doing is i ended up plotting out um all the different bell curves for like to hit and everything with different very you know i use toggles for different variables and such um so i could kind of match them up as best i could i saw one person who commented that they were off and that it was they thought it was 3d6 minus three and i haven't seen that that's nowhere in my adventure so I don't know if it was printed differently in Dragon or something. So hopefully not, because <laughs> I actually worked really hard on balancing those and making sure. And I had someone like look over them, too, to make sure that they were pretty much the same balanced or, if anything, more generous. Mm -hmm. They are not quite as um, – it's not quite as nice a curve because it doesn't have as much variety, right? obviously. But it comes pretty close. Yeah. I, I mean, it's just – it's amazing. And it's actually – uh, I am realizing now how super intelligent you must be because I've I've known you obviously to be a <laughs> great creator, a great writer, a great editor, but it seems that you also have this whole probability skill set, uh, <laughs> which is also really really incredible. So um, you know what? that's kudos to you for being. I would have never even known how to begin to do that. Thanks. <laughs> well, I figured that like. Um... I mean, if you ever design, you design your own, if you design your own monsters or whatever, you need to know about the probability. Like when I designed all the new games for my, um, the Festival of Day Fear in my adult game, even, I had to figure out all the probabilities because I wanted some things to be possible by one character, but none of the others. Um, and I wanted some things to be easy enough that they feel like they get a success and hard enough that 
and others to be um, hard enough that they feel like they really achieved something if they did it. Um, and so it's, it's a lot of, I mean, Excel is fantastic for this because once you set it up, you just, if you set it up with a variable toggle, all you have to do is like change that and everything else kind of calculates your results. Um, but, uh, and that one was much harder because I was doing, um, basically since it was time, like you would, like, for instance, there was a lockbox picking competition and you basically had one minute per box to try and open it. Nice. That's fun. Um, and so with that, that means you have like 10 dice, right? Because mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, it's six seconds per round. <laughs> so it's 10 dice per box. And so it's kind of figuring out like, you know, what is the probability of getting at least one of this or higher um, for each of these boxes? And then what's of getting all for all of them? Because you had to open all the boxes. You couldn't just open the last box in the first box, right? You'd never get to the inner box. Um, so that was that was more complicated. This one was mostly about figuring out what the fun zone is for hitting. And mm. you'd think it would be closer to 50. It's not. It's like 85%. <laughs> 80 to 85% of the time, if you hit, you feel it's fair. Otherwise, it's unfair feeling. Huh. That is interesting. <laughs> yeah. Which is just nuts. <laughs> well, you know, we like to win. That's Yeah. Uh, and the other thing is that I really I didn't want combat to go on too long. Because I find long combats to be to drag. And so course. I wanted to make sure that... Um, each one lasted uh, about three rounds. And that means that it has like a round on its own and then at least one round uh, with another monster so the wizard can get their blast on. Nice, nice, which is great because the wizard is, is what it's all about, right? Is <laughs> and the wizard's the hardest one to play, actually, um, which is sad because it's funny because it's easiest mechanically, I think, because they can go, they can keep their distance and everything, but it's really hard, actually, because um, you're kind of depending on the other players not to move the monsters away from each other. Yes, yeah, that is definitely true. So, but I think that's also true of D and You know, the yes. wizard is the hardest class to play usually. So, yes. <laughs> um, well, this is great. Where can people find you? Uh, we'll link anything that you say right now over at thetomeshow.com for our listeners. Uh, what's the best place for them to get in touch with you? Uh, so, susanjmorris.com is my website. Um, the D&D for Kids, uh, you can find both the original module and the new module on my website at susanjmorris.com slash D&D-4-Kids. Nice, nice. And hopefully, uh, here's what I'm hopeful about. Two things. One is that more of these are to come. And two is that they're going to let you publish your homebrew campaign setting. <laughs> uh, because I, uh, the amount of people who... Uh, got in touch with us after that last interview and said that you had one of the best campaign settings they had ever heard about. Like no, no more people have ever gotten in touch with me about it. Oh, wow. Else. Thank so, you. Yeah. Yeah. That means a lot. Yeah. I've actually started um, writing down kind of uh, a new column kind of on my website, notes from a DM about running a game and starting your own campaign that has some tidbits from my campaign if people are interested. Absolutely. Everybody should go there and check it out right now. So That's I am com slash DM. Nice. Nice. Well, thank you very much for joining me on the roundtable today, Susan. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. And you can follow me on Twitter at James Intercasso. That's at J-A-M-E-S-I-N-T-R-O-C-A-S-O. -S and you can leave us a comment on the Tome Show's website, thetomeshow.com, or at Facebook at facebook.com slash thetomeshow. Also, check out my blog, which is all about Exploration Age. It's the 5th edition world I'm building over at worldbuilderblog.me. 
There's a ton of free resources for your D&D 5e games over there, like Monsters, and I even put a, an adventure for 12th-level characters up there, so if you're feeling lazy, head on that way. I'd like to thank James and Susan for being on the show. Special thanks to Jeff Greiner for letting us join the Tome Show lineup, and an extra special thanks to Sam for getting this podcast out there on the airwaves. Our theme music, which you're listening to right now, was composed by Eric Michaels. Don't forget to go to thetomeshow.com and use the affiliate links whenever you shop on Amazon or D&D Classics to help support the show. And hey, if you like the show, please rate the Tome Show on iTunes and like us on Facebook. Keep on rolling and keep on listening to the Roundtable.